0: Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. This week's message comes from the first week of Advent. Advent is a season of looking forward to the future, specifically looking forward to the coming of Christ. People nowadays often worry when looking to the future. Will they downsize at work? Will my loved ones be safe? Will I get that grade or promotion or raise or date that I want? In this week's message, Pastor David Cartwright reminds us that the season of Advent is a time of looking ahead that is full of hope, a hope that can and should fill the rest of our lives if we let it. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us.
1: Please open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 7. You'll want to have that Bible in your lap and keep it open. I can't see your laps from where I'm sitting. I'm going to trust that your Bible would be sitting there open. Isaiah chapter 7, the first of the prophets listed in, in the Scripture, not very far past the Psalms in about the center of the Bible. Let's begin by reading Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 14. Hear now God's Word. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious Father, in these moments, may your Spirit so richly abide in our midst that our hearts, our minds, Our ears are open and attentive to you. Grant the power and the leading of your spirit that I would speak words of your truth, that they would be spoken in love, with grace, in simplicity, that you would accomplish in our midst your good and perfect will. For every good thing that we receive and experience, we offer only to you the praise and the glory in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. If you today or in recent weeks have experienced despair, anxiety, fear, worry, if you have experienced sleepless nights, or days in which your mind has been preoccupied, whether it's on something that you know or something that you're uncertain about but you just know that something is sticking in the back of your mind, or anything similar to that, Advent is the season for you. Advent is the season that once again reminds us of something that is at the foundation of the Christian faith, and that is the concept of hope. Hoping with confidence that there is something waiting tomorrow that is better than today. The Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said that hope is being able to see that there is light even despite all of the darkness. And as somebody who lived in the face of apartheid and saw what truly was institutional racism, he saw his share of darkness. But hope said that even in the midst of all the darkness, I can see that there is light. Hope tells us that we can lean into the future because God is not finished yet. We come to a text in the Old Testament that sounds quite familiar to us, at least one verse of it does because it gets woven so seamlessly into the birth narrative of Jesus. We didn't read, but we very easily could remember in our minds the text from Matthew 1 as Matthew, the Gospel writer, begins to unfold the Christmas story for for us. And he tells us about how Joseph and Mary are engaged to be married. Joseph discovers that Mary is with child. He doesn't yet understand how. He has decided to put her away uh, privately so that he, he is not, so that he does not openly disgrace her. But then an angel comes to him and says, Joseph, uh, Mary is with child by the power of the Holy Spirit. The child that she will bear will be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew adds his interpretation from a Jewish perspective and says to us, this happened to fulfill what the prophet said, that the virgin would be with child and would bear a son, and they would call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. And in that simple statement, there is something so powerful to be said. God is with us. In this case, there is a very particular context to the original giving of that prophecy. Visit with me, if you would, again, the 7th chapter of Isaiah. The the text of Isaiah is very long, so you're not very far into it here. Isaiah chapter 7 begins with a historical context. It says that, this is in verse 1 of Isaiah 7, it came about in the days of Ahaz... The son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Here's the context. At this time, uh, Israel is divided into uh, two different kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom, which went by the name of Israel. There was the southern kingdom that went by the name of Judah. Ahaz was the son of Jotham, the grandson of Uzziah, in the line of the kings of Judah. What he discovers is that there is this king named Pekah in the northern kingdom of Israel who has aligned himself with a with an Aramean king, and they have set their hearts to attack Judah. Ahaz is troubled. You can appreciate this, can't you? You've got a couple of other forces who have teamed up. They're going to come against you. You're fearful for what might come. You're worried. You have fear. You think, perhaps, that there is a very bad consequence that is about to come upon you. This is where God speaks to the prophet. You read on in verse 3 and it says, "'The Lord said to Isaiah, "'Go out now to meet Ahaz, and you and your son, "'Shear-Jashub,' if I pronounce that incorrectly, I apologize, "'go to the end of the conduit at the upper pool "'on the highway to the fuller's field, "'and say to him,' that is, say to Ahaz,' Take care and be calm, have no fear, and do not be faint hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands, on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. I love the imagery there. It kind of bogs you down a little bit. But here's the basic message God says to the prophet, Go tell the king, don't worry. Don't worry. The ensuing verses are just kind of a continuation of that. The prophet says to the king, I know what's going on, I know what you see, I know what you hear, I know about these kings who have set their hearts to come against you, don't worry. It's, it's with that in mind that we read from where we did in verse 10. Uh, and, and there's a little bit of uncertainty, we don't know... What we do know is that these two sections of the text are connected. Okay, I don't know if this is just kind of a continuation of the same instance or if it's a similar instance that kind of trails one after the other, but I do know that the two are connected in, the, in, in their thought. Okay, because it's with that still in mind, Ahaz is still worried about these guys who are going to come against him. Uh, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Look, and he says something very interesting. He says, "Ask for a sign." Does that strike you as odd when God says to someone, ask me for a sign? If it strikes you odd, it is probably because we have been trained by our reading of the New Testament regarding what Jesus said about those who ask for signs. Do you remember that? Jesus said something to the effect that it's, a, it's an evil, evil and adulterous generation that asks for signs. And, and we might think, well, gosh, this is kind of strange. I mean, God is saying, that's, that's okay. Ask me for a sign. And Ahaz kinds of come, kind of comes off as a, a little bit of, I don't know if it's kind of self-righteous. Oh, no, you know, I'm too good for that. You know, I won't test the Lord, my God. And, and the prophet's reaction to that is, well, why are you testing God by not doing what he invited you to do? God said, ask me for a sign. God isn't uh, necessarily opposed to giving affirmation to his people, assurance of his presence. I mean, he did it for Gideon. Do you remember Gideon in the book of Judges? The, the uh, you know, valiant warrior who was hiding out of fear... And, and God said, I'm going to use you to deliver your people from the, the oppressing forces. And, and Gideon said, well, well, now let's make sure, okay, you need to give me a sign. So I'll lay out the fleece, and tonight, when I wake up in the morning, if it's wet only on the fleece and there's no other dew on, on the rest of the ground, then I'll know. And God said, okay. So he woke up the next morning, and the fleece was wet, and the rest of the ground was dry. Was that enough for Gideon? Just go ahead and say, no, it wasn't course, Gideon said, well, now let's, now be patient with me, Lord, but let's try it again. Uh, tonight I'll put the fleece back out, but tomorrow morning it needs to be dry on the fleece and wet on the rest of the ground. And God said, okay. So he woke up the next morning, it was wet on all the rest of the ground, and it was dry on the fleece. And, and Gideon finally said, okay, God, I believe you now. See, God is not opposed to signs. God, God is opposed to those who won't, won't hear the word of truth, but yet are always addicted to a sign. Let me see a sign, let me see a sign. Because signs are only affirmation of what God has already told. And that's why the book of Acts is replete with God performing signs and wonders by the apostles to confirm the truth about the gospel that they're proclaiming. That's what the signs and wonders are all about. So God says to Ahaz, let me give you a sign. Ahaz kind of says, Well, no, you know, I won't put you to the test. And God said, No, I want to give you a sign. And so, you won't, if you won't ask me for one, I'll just give you one. And the prophet said, Behold, a virgin, and your, your translation of the Bible, depending on which translation you have, may say a maiden or a young woman, will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name. Emmanuel. You see, there, there's a particular thing that happened here. That this was not some uh, just a long foretelling of something that wouldn't happen for centuries later. We don't know exactly what it was. You know, some scholars think maybe that the, the prophet had another son that, that went by the name Emmanuel. Maybe there was another child of whom the prophet and the king also would would have been aware. Uh, who was named Emmanuel, but there was the, the, the birth of a child that was given as a sign to the king to say, look, this giving of the child is the sign to tell you this very important thing. God is with you. The child's name tells it. Emmanuel, God is with us. And if God is with us, then we can face those conditions that cause us fear, anxiety, worry, sleepless nights, preoccupied days, whatever it is, we can face it with the confidence that God is still at work. He's not done yet. And that makes all the difference. It is later that... Matthew comes along and looks at the birth of Christ and says, Ah, do you remember what happened back with Isaiah? And God gave us a sign that he is with us. God did it again. He gave us another child born of a virgin. It is a sign that God is with us. And as we draw close to that celebration, we remember that if God is with us, we can be a people of hope. The Christian hope begins with the understanding that God has acted on our behalf to bring to us spiritual redemption, reconciliation with God. We call it salvation. God has acted to make things right between us and God. And that hope that we have is a real life changer. Turn with me, if you would, way back to the book of Hebrews. There's a little text there that I want you to see, way back toward the rear of your Bible, in Hebrews chapter 6. This is after Paul's epistles... Um, right before you get to the book of James, 1 Peter, etc., Hebrews chapter 6. Um, There's a passage here in which the writer refers back to Abraham, and I want you to hear how the writer uses God's promise to Abraham to give us a confidence to lay claim to the hope that is ours. The writer in verse 13 of chapter 6 begins by saying, dispute. Now, think back to your childhood days. You don't have to say amen to this, but you will under your breath. How many times were you with your friends and you tried to tell them in a convincing manner something you wanted them to believe? And if they seemed not to believe you, what did you do? Oh, I swear, right? And then you'll find something to swear on. You know, wait a minute. Scouts on, or like, okay, you're going to invoke the scouts, you know. Or, I swear on my mother's grave. No one ever said that? Okay. Yeah, I'm sure your mom would appreciate that. Like, see, whatever form you used, what, what you're trying to do is invoke some greater authority to confirm what you're saying. That's what an oath is. It's swearing by something that has a greater authority to confirm what you're saying. What does God use to swear by? Is there a greater authority? That's why, that's why the writer of Hebrews says he, there's nothing greater they can do. So he did what? He swore by himself to Abraham who needed assurance that God would do what God promised that he would do. Now, Revisit with me in your mind the story of Abram, a wandering Aramean who was called by God to pack up his things, move to a distant land where God would give him the promise of land and an inheritance, offspring that were too numerous to count. Remember, Abram didn't have any children. This promise first shows up to us in Genesis chapter 12. If you read just a little bit further over to Genesis chapter 15, Abram is a little bit further down the road. There's no, still no indication in Abram's life that the promise is going to come true. Abram starts the question, and he says, God, how am I going to know? How am I going to know that I'm going to get this offspring? How am I going to know that you're going to do what you told me that you were going to do And give me this land. And so God does something very interesting. It sounds really strange to us. If you read there toward the end of Genesis chapter 15, he tells Abram to go get some animals. There are five in particular types of animals that he told Abram to go get. Abram knew exactly what to do with them. He killed the animals, divided the pieces in two, and laid them opposite of each other in a place where the blood would come down toward the center. And then it says that a deep sleep fell over Abram and a deep and terrible darkness came upon him. And what Abram saw was what is described as a smoking oven and a flaming torch that passed between the pieces of those sacrifices. It sounds really odd to us, but it did not sound odd to Abram Abram because it it was a means by which in that culture a covenant was made. And in that moment, God was saying to Abram, I've given you my promise, and now I give you my covenant oath. What I have promised to do, I will do. Read with me what what the writer of Abram says. In verse 17, In the same way God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. Linger on those words for a moment, would you? The unchangeableness of his purpose. He interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. What two unchangeable things? The writer doesn't tell us, but I am working on the understanding that those two unchangeable things are God's promise. And God's oath in which God will not lie. He does not go back on his promise. He does not go back on his oath. On two unchangeable things, God said to Abram, I will do what I told you I'm going to do. And if God did the same for Abram, do you not think that God will do the same for us? Do you not think that God will fulfill the promises he has for his people? This is what hope is is called the confidence of moving forward that God will do what he said he was going to do. And then the writer in verse 19 has this beautiful phrase, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. I love the imagery of that. The hope that we have as Christians is an anchor for our soul. Do you know what an anchor does? It holds you, doesn't it? Do you know where a ship goes if it's not anchored? Providing that the engine isn't running or the sails aren't up. If the the ship isn't anchored, it goes whichever ways the current and the wind blow it. Okay? It's at the mercy of the external forces. But when the ship is anchored, it stays where it needs to be, regardless of the forces that are acting upon it. The writer of Hebrews says that God's promise that we will inherit, our, our promises as His people are sure, and they will keep our soul anchored in the midst of all of the uncertainties that we face. This is Christian hope. It's the basis for Christian hope. Christian hope does not discount the things in life that cause us stress. All it does is to say, when you are in the midst of those things, remember, Emmanuel, God is with you. And if God is still with you, God is not done yet. Think for a moment about the kinds of things your friends, your family, and maybe even you have faced. the loss of a spouse, and it may not even be recent, but it still stings. The breakup of a relationship. Questions that cause you to doubt the things that you've always assumed were correct. We might call it a crisis of the faith wondering if the things you've believed about God are really true. Permanent injury that leaves your life forever changed or the diagnosis of a life-threatening illness. Financial insecurities, the loss of a job or something that causes you to worry about the well-being of yourself and your family. Maybe it's an unhealthy work environment. A boss is, who is requiring things of you that, uh, that you know are not right and you don't know where you can turn to make it better. We could go on. But these are the kinds of things that leave us in life with those sleepless nights and preoccupied days. They're real. They are real. And the Christian faith never says these things aren't going to happen. What it does say is that in the midst of them, God is with you. And if God is with you, He's not done yet. And you see, there's something else we need to add to this. And it's something that we, we throw out so frequently in the Christian faith. It comes to us in that powerful and familiar verse of Romans 8 28 where where Paul says for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose I want to ask you this morning how deeply you believe that's true seriously I want you to think for a moment how deeply you believe that that is true it will inform how you think about God being active in your life. Because if you believe to the bottom of your soul that this is true, you will believe that everything God does and everything God allows to happen in your life somehow is working for something good, even if you can't see it at the time. It makes a difference. The problem we so often face is that we fall victim to the temptation to think that God is done. God's done. The circumstances now, it's just not going to get any better. Nothing good is going to come out of it. History is replete with people who thought God was done, and He showed them otherwise. Can I give you a couple of examples? Just say yes. Turn with me way back to the book of Ruth. You remember Ruth? Joshua Judges Ruth, eighth book of the Bible, if my math is correct. Brief history. There's a woman named Naomi. She's married to a guy named Elimelech. They are Israelites, but they go to Moab because there's a famine in the land. They go to Moab with their two sons. After they move to Moab, Elimelech dies. Naomi is left with her two sons. Both of those sons take Moabite women as wives. Given a few years, both of the sons die. Eventually, Naomi decides that she's going to go back to her homeland. She, she learns that God has visited his people and that there is food. Both of the daughters-in-law decide that they want to come back with her. She encourages them to stay. What I want you to see is something that, uh, that Naomi says. You read it in Ruth chapter 1 beginning at verse 11. Both of the, do- both of the daughters-in-law are saying, we want to go back with you. Um, Naomi said, Return, my daughters, why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if, if I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Think about how powerful that is. Naomi is convinced right now that God is done with her. It's done. Did you hear? Even if I had hope that there are still sons in my womb, I mean, you you, you wouldn't be around long enough for us to do anything about it. It's done for me. Go ahead. She didn't have any more hope. But she didn't understand that God wasn't done yet. She didn't understand that Naomi Naomi had one daughter-in-law who would press her and say, you're not getting rid of me that easy. That's not really what she said, but that's what she meant. She said, I'm going to go back with you. And Naomi didn't see that that Ruth would go back with her, and that there was a man named Boaz who was a relative of her husband, Elimelech, and that Boaz would take Ruth as a wife, and they would bear children, and then their lineage would come, the king of Israel. You see, Ruth didn't understand, or Naomi didn't understand at the time, that God wasn't finished yet. But she thought that he was. Fast forward with me, if you would, to the 24th chapter of the gospel according to Luke. It's Easter morning. It's Easter day. Jesus has been raised from the tomb. There's a passage in there that we call uh, the Emmaus story. There are two disciples who are traveling along from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Jesus comes alongside of them, and he starts to talk with them, but their eyes uh, don't, don't see that it's Jesus. They just think it's some random guy. And Jesus strikes up a conversation and says, Hey, guys, what are you talking about? And they kind of think that he's a little bit off his rocker. He said, What do you mean, what are we talking about? We're talking about what everybody's talking about in Jerusalem today. And they start telling Jesus about this guy named Jesus. Interesting irony, isn't it? Don't, don't you, haven't you heard about this guy named Jesus? He, he was this prophet, powerful, powerful mighty in, in word and in deed. And then there's this, this one line in verse 21 where the disciples say, but we were hoping that he was the one to redeem Israel. Did you hear the past tense in that? We were hoping that He was the one to redeem Israel. You see, their hope was gone. They thought God was finished, but He wasn't. How many times are we tempted in life to say, You know what? I'm just not sure God has anything left. For me, Uh, the Christian faith tells us God is still at work. Emmanuel, God is with us. And if God is with us, God is still at work. And in the midst of all of our stressors, there is always hope. God's not done yet. There's a Christian author from the late 2nd and early 3rd century that we know as Tertullian. Tertullian once said that hope is patience with the lamp lit. Hope is patience with the lamp lit. I like that. You know what we did this morning? We lit a candle. So as the people of the resurrected Lord, we enter into a season reminding ourselves that we are people of hope. Patiently waiting with anticipation because God is with us. And if God is with us, God is not done yet. Let us pray. Father, in the midst of a life that sometimes seems chaotic, out of control, and perhaps only going from bad to worse, you remind us that you are still here. And Father, we thank you that we can move with confidence, with hope, with great anticipation into the days ahead because, God, You are continuously one who shows Yourself to work in amazing ways. So, Lord, I pray that for every person this morning who is finding it difficult to move on into tomorrow, I pray that You would fan into flame the hope That Christ brings to us now and always we thank you for Jesus we thank you for his life for his death for his resurrected life and the hope that we have that one day Lord all things will be made new and we will be your children around your throne for eternity grant to us that hope that it may burn brightly within us today is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
0: We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of his truth as you journey through this day.